Good morning. Ooh, bit of a lag there. My name's Randy, and I have the amazing privilege of getting to know your, some of your students and your volunteer youth leaders uh, because I'm getting to be the part-time interim youth pastor, and it is an amazing privilege. And you, you need to know you've got some great students and some great volunteers, and uh, I'm loving getting to know them. Uh, just wanted to give a little heads up to those of you who are in grade 9 to grade 12 or parents thereof. February 10 to 12, we're having a retreat, and I would love to see not all of you. Some of you are way too old. You'd totally ruin it. Um, but I'd love to see you if you're in grade 9 or grade 12, be there for the weekend with us at Camp Evergreen. And registration forms will be available Tuesday and then uh, Sunday following and for the next month. Uh, I've been involved in youth ministry, as I've mentioned, uh, a number of years. I love youth ministry. I don't know why anyone would choose to work with big people when they can work with students. Uh, but very early in my youth ministry career as a young youth pastor, uh, because I've been in it so long, I tend to read everything through the grid of youth ministry. Jesus had a youth group. They were called 12 Disciples, and uh, that was his youth group. And so you learn a lot from Jesus' youth group. And um, they were long kids, some of them. But uh, so early in my youth ministry career, I started doing this and reading things as, from a youth ministry lens. And I was reading through First um, and Second Timothy, and I came to the passage that I want to use as a jumping off point today. First uh, Timothy chapter four, starting at verse nine, and it says these words: Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Oh, when you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books, especially my papers. Um, here, here, Paul is writing. It's coming to close to the end of his life. It's the end of his ministry, getting close to the end. He's probably in prison and uh, he still feels like he's got stuff to do, so he's sending off notes, and he sent this one to Timothy, and at the very end, almost as a postscript, he says, bring uh, my coat, I'm cold. Bring my books, I'm bored. And bring John, this, this kid named Mark with you, because he's useful to me in ministry. And I remember reading that as a youth pastor, thinking, I wonder what kind of a kid in the youth group he was. Like, what was he like in the youth group? Because, I mean, of, of the dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that Paul could have asked for at the end of his life, he asked for this one kid. And I, I just wondered what he was like in youth group. He had to be a superstar, don't you think? One of those kids that always just seems to bubble to the top and natural-born leader and all that kind of stuff. And so I decided I'd see if I could discern anything else about him. And I discovered that in some places he's called John Mark. His first appearance is in the book of Mark, chapter 14, and in that chapter, you know the story. It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's taken his disciples into the Olive Garden, and he's gone off to pray, and it was perhaps one of those hot and muggy nights. You know the type where it's really still, there's no breeze, it's hard to sleep, and perhaps this John Mark kid had been tossing and turning in one of the vine keepers' huts in one of the, the um, gardens, one of the vineyards that Jesus had gone through when he'd made his way to the garden. Or perhaps he was just laying there, and as he was almost asleep, he heard the rattle and clatter of armor from temple guard and the flicker of torchlight. And like a kid who hears a siren from a fire engine, he's up. He wants to see where the excitement is. And having been laying there naked trying to cool off, he just throws some sheet around his body, 
And he starts to follow this parade. And before long, they come into this olive garden near a wine, uh, olive press. And, and things really start to get crazy then because one of the guys from the parade steps out and kisses this Jesus guy. A bunch of the soldiers rush up to grab him. And Peter, who was only half awake, grabs a knife or a sword or something, tries to whack some dude's head off and only gets his ear. There's blood. There's screaming. There's ear on the ground. And as you're watching this, you're getting closer and closer. And then he sees Jesus pick it up and heal it back on the guy's head. And I think he probably forgot himself that, you know, this could be a big deal. He's just getting closer and closer. And perhaps one of the temple guards saw him and circled around because it says this in, in Mark chapter 14. It says in verse 51, one young man following behind was clothed only in a linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. Second streaker in the Bible. They're always students. Youth ministry, first Joseph in the Old Testament, now this kid named John Mark, or Mark. Uh, most of what we know, we, we have to do a little bit of reading between the lines. Um, it, it was at John, mother, John Mark's mother's house that the church in Jerusalem met. So he would have been acquainted with Peter and James and John and Andrew. He would have been acquainted with the disciples after Jesus' resurrection. It certainly appears that his mom was a believer. And we know that they, as a church, would meet in her house. And in fact, the night that Peter was miraculously released from prison, when the angel woke him up and opened the gates, and, and in fact, Peter thought he was dreaming, finds himself standing alone outside the prison and thinks, well, I, I guess I'll go to John Mark's mother's house. Because that's where the church meets. And sure enough, they'd been having a prayer meeting. And we know they had some wealth because they had at least one servant. For when Peter got there and banged on the door, she went to answer the door, saw it was Peter, slammed the door in his face, went back to the prayer meeting, and said, Peter's outside. Now, she needed a little more training, perhaps, with the niceties, but um, we, we know they had some wealth. We know that he would have been aware of some of the early church leaders. In fact, Barnabas, who befriended Saul turned Paul, was his cousin. And so... He would have known them, and probably Paul and Barnabas would have stayed at his mom's house when they were in Jerusalem. And somewhere along the line, both of them must have been phenomenally impressed with this young man, because at one point, we're told that Paul and Barnabas, in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, starting at verse 36, it says, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. <laughs> I love this next verse. Their disagreement was so sharp, they separated. Now, I've been to some annual meetings that have had so sharp disagreements. I, I can picture these two. They're discussing it. Hey, we should go back and visit all those new believers, those churches we planted. That's a great idea. Let's go do that. Okay. Well, let's take John Mark with us. Well, no. No, no, come on, Paul. Listen, let, let's, let's give John Mark another chance. You see, because when they went on their first missionary journey, John Mark had been asked to go with them. And everything was going fine as long as they were on the island of Cyprus. But then when they got to Asia Minor, things went horribly, horribly wrong. And John Mark's courage faded like sand flows through your fingers at the beach, 
and he turned tail for the safety of his mama's house. And so when it came time to go again, Barnabas is saying, well, let's take him. And Paul's saying, not on your life. Failure's fatal. This is too important to take a risk on that kid. He blew it. We can't count on him. And, and Barnabas is saying, no, Paul, we've got to take him. And, and uh, Paul's saying, not in your life. And they came to the point where Paul's saying, I'm not going with him. And Barnabas saying, I'm not going without him. And I can picture the two standing a foot apart, vehemently making their point, the spittle flying back and forth, but they'd come to a complete loggerhead. And so Barnabas said, fine, I'll take John Mark myself. And Paul said, fine, I'll go with Silas. Now, it's interesting to me that Barnabas was the one who took Paul under his wing when the church was terrified of him after his conversion. And I believe that Paul was an apostle and inspired when he was writing those portions of Scripture that we have that came from his pen. But in this case, I believe he was wrong. Barnabas was not willing to give up on John Mark. He wouldn't throw him on the ash heap of life. Now, God was still faithful to use it for everyone's good and for the good of the kingdom, but somebody must have been wrong in their attitude. And we know that Barnabas refused to give up on John Mark, and little is heard of him after they sailed to Cyprus. So my question became, what made the difference? How did he go from this runaway to a requested worker? How did he go to com from completely discardable to indispensable? Non-biblical history tells us that there were two men who refused to give up on John Mark. One was Barnabas, and Barnabas took him to be with Peter. And non-biblical history tells us those two men poured their lives into John Mark. And what became of him? Well, he wrote the first gospel that was written from his own personal experiences like that night in the garden and from the stories and sermons of Peter. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul mentions a letter of recommendation that he'd sent to that church. That would be somewhat like someone of the caliber of Bill Hybels or Erwin McManus or Andy Stanley or Greg Rochelle writing a letter to Airdrie Alliance Church and saying, if you can ever have Randy come preach in your church, you should do that. And I'm telling you, that's not going to happen, but that's what it would be like. In Philemon, verse 24, Paul refers to him as a fellow worker. And then, of course, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, of all of the people he could have asked for, he asked for John Mark. See, I believe Barnabas knew, and Paul later came to realize, that we dare not give up on people because God knows things we don't. And one of the reasons that I'm in youth ministry is I believe we dare not give up on students because God knows things we don't. I suspect in the early church there were different cells of believers that were meeting together and the name of Saul was on their lips. I suspect their prayers were like this, oh God, take him out. Turn him into a holy french fry. Just nuke him, he's a problem. But I wonder how many were praying, oh God, would you get a hold of Saul? Because when you do, he will be as rapidly for you and for the kingdom as he is against you right now. You see, God knows things we don't. And I want to say to those of you who are involved in children's ministry or youth ministry or our parents, keep going. Keep going because God knows things you don't. Youth leaders, children's ministry workers, that, that person, that 
individual that is in your small group, in your Sunday school class, that seems to have the spiritual gift of irritation. (laughs) And seems to be walking so far away and pushing so hard against Jesus may be one of his next great sermons. We can't give up. We dare not give up. And I believe as a community, as a faith family, all of us, it's not just our children's workers, it's not just our youth workers, it's not just our parents, all of us have a responsibility to see our students reach their fullest potential for Jesus. And I believe that we have a role to play, and there are at least four things that we can all do to see our students reach their fullest potential for Jesus. The very first thing is this, we need to pray and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, and not give up. We need to pray for those who are already walking with Jesus, that they would go deeper in their relationship with him, and he would show them things that they haven't seen yet. We need to pray for those who are are kind of cold toward Jesus, that Jesus would somehow invade their hearts and, and light a fire in them to passionately follow him. We need to pray for those who are antagonistic and in some cases running as far and as fast away from Jesus as they possibly can get. We need to pray that they would have a Damascus Road experience like Saul had and their lives would be radically transformed. We need to pray. And we need to pray for those students in our faith community and outside of the walls of this church who don't yet know Jesus that they would see the truth of the gospel and have their lives turned upside down too. We need to pray. And I believe in every church that has a youth ministry, there should be an identifiable group of adults who will pray regularly and aggressively for the youth and the youth workers of the church. And one of the amazing privileges I've had in the last number of years as I've traveled around full-time is to be invited into some different church settings to do some consulting and some mentoring and things like that. And it's interesting, I, I, sometimes I go in and sometimes I go into situations where there, there's a lot of difficulty and there's challenges and, and there's a lot of upset. And there's, because let's face it, when you're dealing with teenagers, students, junior high, senior high, you are dealing with parents' most prized possessions. And before that, they were completely controllable. And they move from controllable to totally uncontrollable. I think every youth worker should be issued asbestos underwear, to tell you the truth. But I go into some of these settings, and there's upset, and there's animosity, and there's difficulty. And and there are parents who are upset, and I get it. None of the youth workers are perfect. But I've often wondered, what would God do if we spent as much time and energy and effort in praying for the students and the youth workers of our church? What would God do in their hearts? We need to pray. We need to have an identifiable group of adults who will say, hey, count on me. You tell me what to pray about and I'll talk to Jesus about those things. I think the second thing we need to do is we need to live authentic lives in front of them. As a youth pastor, I became convinced that the most dangerous place to grow up was not in a completely atheistic, antagonistic home. I would way rather have that student in my youth group with all of their angst and questions and pushing than a kid from the most dangerous place to grow up, which is in the marginal Christian home. The church family that gets cleaned up, gets into the car, goes to church, sings the songs, looks good on Sunday, but it does not affect how they live the rest of their lives. 
Because as kids move into adolescence, they tend to become idealists and they can see what's going on and they look at the example of the adults that surround them and they see the disconnect between what is said on Sunday and what is lived the rest of the week. And one of two things happens. They either say, that's not real, and throw it out, and walk as far away from Jesus as they can, or, which in some cases worse, I think, they say, I get it, it's a game. So I'll just play the game. You see, it's the Sunday game. It's the go-to-church game. It doesn't really affect how I live the rest of my life. Oh, I go out Saturday night and get wasted. I can still go to church hungover as long as I look okay. It's a game. And the difficulty with the game is, it's like they're inoculated. They've got just enough of the Jesus virus to never truly catch it. I believe the most dangerous place to grow up is in a marginal Christian home. And if we want to see our students reach their fullest potential for Jesus, we need to live authentic lives in front of them, not just as parents, but as a church community. And sometimes the best thing we can do for our students is to acknowledge to them, I do not have it all together. My heart's a mess too, but I'm leaning on Jesus to heal me and give me hope. But I haven't got it together, and I don't know all the answers, and I don't understand everything about the Bible, but I do know this. Jesus claimed to be God, and he died on a cross, and he rose from the grave to prove he was God, and some days that's all I know, but that's enough. We need to live authentic lives in front of them. I think the third thing we need to do is we need to give them permission to pass us spiritually and then deal with the emotions that that will stir up. I say to people, I am what I am and I see what I see spiritually because I'm standing on my parents' shoulders. My dad's like fourth, fifth, sixth generation Jesus follower. Great history. My mom is first generation Jesus follower broke unbelievable dysfunction. They were far from perfect, but they built a foundation of faith for me that I've had the privilege of standing on. But in some cases, I think I've passed my mom and dad spiritually. My, my oldest daughter's 28. My other daughter's 24. My desire is that they would pass me spiritually. And in some cases, they have. Years ago, when my oldest daughter was just a, a toddler, she'd just become a homo erectus, you know, where they were toddling around rather than the homo grounded. <laughs> and we used to vacation with a, uh, another family who had a, do- a daughter about four or five months younger than ours, and she was still a homo grounded. She was still a crawler. But our daughter could get up and just toddle around. And one afternoon, I was sitting in the cabin, laying on the, laying on the couch, just watching our kids, and and I noticed my daughter got up and started to wobble by this other little girl, and she crawled over a bit, reached up, grabbed my daughter's diaper, and pulled her back to earth. <laughs> now, thankfully, there's not a great deal of altitude between the rear end and the ground, and there's a fair amount of padding to absorb any, any of the collision. And so my daughter kind of, poof, and, and crawled away and got up and walked by. I noticed something that week, and that was this. Every time my daughter toddled past this other little girl, she would reach up, grab her diaper, and pull her back to earth. It was kind of fun to watch. (laughs) Now, I don't know what was going on in that little girl's peanut brain. I don't know, but I wonder if it wasn't she was looking at this friend of hers 
and saying, hey, you're doing things I can't. And even as this little girl that stirred up feelings with her, and the only way she knew how to fix them was to pull her back to earth. The tragedy is, I have seen parents do exactly the same thing spiritually to their kids. Because when our kids pass us spiritually, it will stir up feelings of inadequacy and that we are not where we ought to be with Jesus. And there are only two ways to resolve that problem. One is to stop them. The other is to acknowledge, Jesus, you need to do a deeper, more significant work in my life. The last church I was youth pastor at was Chilliwack Alliance Church. And... um, I sensed God was leading me out of local youth ministry into the full-time traveling, speaking anywhere they'd have me kind of thing. And, and so the board kind of got wind of that. They asked me if I'd come share what I thought God was doing in my heart. So at the January meeting, I, I said, well, this is sort of what I believe God's inviting me to do. And one of the elders said, I move we accept Randy's resignation effective the end of June. Another said, I second it. And, and the district superintendent was sitting there, and he's kind of going, ah, ah. And I remember thinking, I don't remember resigning. I was just sharing I guess I've resigned now. And it was unanimous. Okay, it was the longest resignation in the history of the world. I'm pretty sure it was almost a full six months. And, and this church had a high value on youth ministry. They loved their students. And so they came to me very shortly after I resigned and said, listen, we really don't feel like we can be without a youth pastor for a period of time. Would it be okay with you if we started the search process now before you're gone? And I said, that'd be great. I'd even be willing to help. They weren't interested in my help, but they began looking. <laughs> and it didn't take them long to find a kid. And they started telling me about him. They, they came to me I, two months, two and a half months before I was supposed to go and said, we found the guy. We've hired him. His name's Dave. And they started telling me about Dave. Really cool. He was the president of the student body at the Bible school that year. He was athletic. He was musical. There was a lot not to like about the kid is what I'm telling you. <laughs> and so I literally only met him for five minutes one day before he was supposed to start. And they said to me, you got to move out of the youth pastor's office. And they found a lovely broom closet for me. It was lovely. And uh, so I moved out in preparation for him to be there. And I remember the day he started and he's starting to move his stuff in. It was six weeks before I was supposed to be gone. And, and so I just walked into his office and said, Dave, you got a lot to do here. And and so um, why don't we just, can, can we meet after lunch? I think there's some things we need to talk about as we navigate this next six weeks together. And he said, sure, that'd be great. And so I went into his office after lunch and sat on <clears throat> what used to be one of my couches and uh, <clears throat> said to him, so Dave, here's the deal. Um, in my heart, I really do want you to be successful here. And... Um, I really want to do what I can to help transfer the loyalty of the students to you and have them love you every bit as much as they love me. And I want, that, I want, to, I want to help propel you into success and help launch you into this ministry here. And I want to do everything I can to help, but there's a problem I'm scared to death. Because I know my heart's really, really messy. And I know that when they start to transfer loyalty to you and start going to you, that may strip some senses of rejection and unimportance. And I know that when I wrestle in my heart, I do really stupid things. And so I said to him, could, could we just make a deal that if you ever sense 
that I'm not honoring you in front of them or blessing you, or if you feel like I ever do anything to sabotage what you're trying to do, would you please just come to me and go, hey, Rand, how's your heart? Because it's probably not good. His mouth kind of hung open, and he said, you're scared to death. I mean, you don't have to leave. The kids love you. You're like the grandpa of youth ministry. Keep working on that gift of encouragement, kid. Um, think he was trying to be nice. And he shared his heart, and that day our hearts were intertwined. And we did have to have some of those, hey, Rand, how's your heart moments. But we just acknowledged that we, we were going to deal with our stuff rather than try and grab one another's diaper. It was Six of the most unbelievably fun weeks of youth ministry. We have to give our kids permission to pass us spiritually. And then deal with the issues that that raises in our own hearts. And it raises stuff. One of my daughters is mentoring me in an area of my spiritual walk, my walk with Jesus. And it's kind of humbling, but it's kind of cool. There was one family that experienced this in a rather harsh way. Their daughter had caught this passion to see your friends come to know Jesus and we would do these group outreaches every six weeks or so and and kids were getting saved and kids were inviting their friends and they were getting exposed to Jesus and there were cool things going on and one morning she came down for breakfast and she sat across from her parents at the breakfast table and just said don't you care your friends are going to hell like I don't see you doing anything to talk to them about Jesus like we have these outreaches every six weeks but like do you just not care or like what's up That went over really well. <laughs> and it, it, it was the idealism of youth, and it was not done kindly. But that does something to your heart. And then you have to decide. And it's quite possible that some of your kids will begin to outpace you spiritually. We have to give them permission to do that and just deal with what is being stirred on the inside. The fourth thing I believe we need to do if we want to see them reach their fullest potential for Jesus is we need to let our students be idealistic and radical for Jesus. Students by nature tend to be idealists and they tend to be radical. If you don't believe me, just go hang out at a school for a couple, you know, a couple days. You'll see all manner of things because they're idealists and they're radical. That's just the way they tend to be. A number of years ago, when I was at Southview Alliance, I, we, we had a group of students that would meet regularly every couple of weeks to, to learn how to care for their peers who are believers and reach their friends who were not believers yet. And I'd called a meeting between Christmas and New Year's. And we were having our meeting, and one of the girls, a girl named Joanne, was, was late. She, she hadn't arrived yet, and she showed up, and she was obviously ticked off about something. You could tell when she came in. She didn't hide her feelings well. And I said, hi, Joanne, how you doing? She said, I'm mad. And I said, okay, why are you mad? Hoping it wasn't because the youth pastor called the meeting between Christmas and New Year's. She said, I'm mad at Alice Cooper. And I said, what's she done to you? <laughs> now, you need to understand something, people. This was like 1993. I'm a child of the 70s. 1972, school's out for summer, Alice Cooper. Couldn't still be alive, could he possibly? 
And she said, not her, him. And, yeah, lovely fellow. And uh, I said, well, why are you ticked off at him? Well, he's coming to Calgary. He's going to be doing a concert this, in a month, or, month and a half or something. And he's going to be actively recruiting kids for Satan's youth group. And that ticks me off. I thought that was kind of righteous anger. And I said, well, we can pray about that. And she said, I know, but I want to do something. Knowing Joanne, that could be Christian terrorism. I'm having <laughs> imaginations of her getting a rocket launcher and blowing them off the stage or blowing up the power substation for the saddle dome. And she said, I said, prayer's a powerful thing, you know. She said, I know, but I want to do something. And we had a tradition. Before these, these things we called riots, these group outreach events, we would uh, invite whatever kids wanted to to come to the venue, and we would march around the outside of it seven times. Each time we went around, we'd pray for something different. And, and we just called it a Jericho prayer walk, and it was mostly to keep the ADHD youth pastor kind of focused um, <laughs> in prayer, because if my body's bu busy, my mind has a hope. And... Um, so we'd march around, and we'd do this, and we'd just pray for different things each, each time we went around. And so one of the kids went, hey, why don't we do a Jericho prayer walk during the concert down at the Saddle Dome? Now, this was not an idea that my heart went, a good idea. <laughs> my heart kind of went, oh. So I just casually said, well, when is that concert? And, and they told me the date, and I took my paper day timer, and I turned to the date. I had a board meeting that night. I don't like board meetings but I was thrilled I had one. <laughs> Said, oh, guys, I have a board meeting. And so these kids started to whip each other up, and by the end of the meeting, they were in a lather. They are going to go down to the Saddle Dome the night of the concert. They're going to march around the outside as a group praying against Alice Cooper and praying for the kids that are in there. And I don't know what they're going to pray, but it's going to be, they are going to go at it. And I had a board meeting. And so it starts spraying out in our youth group, and kids are getting excited, and parents, some of them are like, they're getting freaked out. They're going, oh, over my dead body. Some of them are a little more measured. They're going, if you have a leader. I had a board meeting, but we, we had a volunteer. <laughs> Love board meetings that month. We had, a, we had a, 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 a youth leader who was a bank manager, coolest bank manager ever. His name was Bill, and, and he said, well, I'll go with them. And some parents were totally cool. They just went, yeah, right, whatever. We'll pick you up at jail in the morning. <laughs> so the day of the concert, February, it was actually Chinooking, so it was slightly above freezing. I thought, I wonder how long it takes to walk around the outside of the Saddle Dome. So I went down, and I walked around. It took me just, just under nine minutes, or under ten minutes, rather. And I thought, there's no way these kids are going to come down here when it's colder tonight and march around outside for over an hour. There's no way. They'll come down, get around a few times, pray, and that'll be good. That's good. Prayer's not bad. It's good. I have a board meeting. And um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll pray there too. And uh, so they did. And nothing happened. They marched around seven times. They marched around for slightly over an hour. And Alice Cooper didn't fall off the stage. He didn't break a hip. His oxygen tank didn't run out or his walker wheel fell off or something. <laughs> But they came back, and the next day in the Herald, the paper said that the, the concert was just a nothing concert. It lacked any kind of punch or panache. It was just And the kids went, thanks, Jesus. Thank you. Joanne ended up becoming a missionary as a single woman to Muslims. She liked the challenge. <laughs> and years later, somebody 
came to me, I'd shared that story. Somebody came to me and said, do you know Alice Cooper accepted Jesus? And I'm going, I don't think it was that Alice Cooper. <laughs> no, 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 that guy. They bite the head off a chicken, school's off for summer, that guy. And I went, no way. So I phoned my friend Bill and I said, do you know what I heard? I heard Alice Cooper accepted Jesus. He said, really? I'm going to find out. So he started doing some research. He phoned the church in Phoenix, Arizona. And he phoned me later and he said, I found out he goes to a church in Phoenix, Arizona, the same church as Glenn Campbell. Now, if you recognize those two names, you would understand. They have a varied worship style at that church. <laughs> wow. So I phoned the church. And he told me, I also heard that he teaches grade six boys Sunday school. How would you like that guy <laughs> teaching? <laughs> okay, guys, come here, come here, come here. Next week, we're going to talk about the sacrificial system. <laughs> so if you could get me some chickens. No, 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 not, no, no, not frozen chickens, live chickens. Show you some stuff. Week after, I'll show you some cool stuff you can do with your mom's makeup. Uh, <laughs> what's the guy? I phoned the church. And I said, hi, my name's Randy. You don't know me. I'm a youth worker in Canada. I heard a rumor that Alice Cooper goes to your church. Is that true? Yes, it is. Wow, I also heard he teaches grade six boys Sunday school. Yes, it is. I almost said, what were you thinking? Um, <laughs> but I said, could, I, I know you don't know me, but could you ask him to call me? She said, sure, I'll ask him to call you, but I'm, there's no guarantees. He never called any Baptists. I'm just kidding. If you're a Baptist, I'm just, I'm just kidding. One day I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to get to spend eternity in Jesus' presence. I know we're going to worship like crazy. But I also believe that we are going to be able to have a relationship. And uh, I, want, I want to find him. I don't think he'll be hard to recognize. Um, and I just want to sit down and hear his story. I just would really love to be able to sit with him and say, tell me your story back to Jesus. You see, he was a Baptist minister's son. He knew truth. He just got a very long way away from Jesus. A number of years ago, uh, I was speaking out east, and I, I met somebody who shared with me he'd been in Alice Cooper's band. He was the bass player, and he was also a Baptist minister's son. He said there were a lot of messed up Baptist minister's son in Alice Cooper's band. You know, we need to give them permission to be idealistic and radical for Jesus. And it will probably cause chaos and, and be messy. And, and stuff might get broken around here. It might really, you know, kind of disturb us a little bit. But we got to give them permission. Because if we don't give them permission to be idealistic and radical for, radical for Jesus, they're going to find a cause. And there's no better cause. Joanne was rather idealistic and radical. I think she got thrown out of three Muslim countries as a single woman, woman missionary to Muslims. Scared her parents half to death. It's going to be messy and chaotic and things might get broken. We have a part to play. It's not just the children's workers or the youth workers. It's not just the youth pastor. It's not just parents. We all have a part to play. We need to let them be idealistic and radical for Jesus. We need to give them permission to pass us. We need to live authentic lives in front of them. And we need to pray. And I know prayer is like motherhood and apple pie. It's, oh yeah, we got prayer. We got to pray. But I believe there needs to be an identifiable group. So this morning... Um, if you would like to be one of those people, now don't do it because it's the right thing to do. Don't do it because it's just, oh, yeah. 
Okay. But if you would like to be one of those people, uh, Luke and I are starting a prayer base. And we are actively recruiting some people to say, count on me. And we want to start texting prayer requests and the odd text about what God's doing. And if you don't have text, then we can send you an email. I prefer the text personally. They're short, 140 characters. And I stop and pray right then. Email gets buried for me, but maybe not for you. If you'd like to be one of those people, I'd encourage you, excuse me, to take one of these cards and put your name on it. And then if you would prefer to get a text, would you just put your cell phone number in there? If you would prefer to get emails, would you just put your email address in there? And then as we sing, I'm going to invite you to bring them to the front and just lay them on the stage. And after the service, I'll collect them up. And in the next couple weeks, you'll start getting some regular communications about things you can pray for. I get so worked up about what God could do. What God could do in the lives of our students. What God can do in the lives of their friends. What God could do in the lives of our leaders. But don't do it just because it's the right thing to do. But if you know that you want to be one of those people, as we sing, I'm not, not going to be any further inter, in, invitation. As we sing, we'll just invite you to come when you've got that filled out and just place it on the stage and we'll collect those.